Hello and welcome to the Babiaga Project. I'm Devin. I have a master's degree in American History and Indigenous Studies. And I'm Sonia and I'm doing a PhD in Medieval History. The Babiaga Project is a podcast and blog that explores the ritualized year, folklore, and history. And today we're talking about Halloween! Ah, spooky season! Spook, spook. The culmination of the spooks. <laughs> All the spooks. <laughs> so when we reach our height of spookiness. Yeah. I'm very excited. I got my little my Pillsbury Doughboy jack-o'-lantern cookies that come, they come pre-cut now. You don't even I have to cut them. I haven't found any yet. Oh, that is tragic. I think I you have to go to the bigger stop grocery going. stores. Yeah, or just not the, like, super cheap sad person grocery store that I shop at. That's also fair. <laughs> okay. So aside from the Pillsbury cookies, we are here to talk about Halloween in the past, present, maybe the future. Who knows? See where this takes us. I'm the ghost of Halloween future. Oh, what a gig. <laughs> Okay, so Sonia, you're going to start us off in how how long ago? Just how far back are we throwing it to? I mean, unclear, uncertain. Um, it, like, Halloween, we cool. normally associate with pagan origins, but the actual name Halloween is... The etymology is Christian um, because it comes from like All Hallows Eve, right? So it's mm -hmm. the night before All Hallows Day or All Saints Day. Okay. Um, but you know, there's there's more typically we see Halloween being linked to the Celtic festival of Samhain. Mm -hmm. Did I pronounce that right? Samhain, yeah, amazing. <laughs> so when, Yo, it's spelled Samhain, Samhain. Uh, but it's it's Samhain I really try with the Celtic pronunciations but it's it's hard for me <laughs> and I'm learning so okay. I am not great either because my actual study of Scottish Gaelic is limited but I try my people well yes so <laughs> this is a festival that would have been no to to bring it back to your people. This would have been yeah. Celtic festival that was basically like an you know ancient pre like pre Christian pre everything <laughs> like potentially mm -hmm. age old kind of pastoral or agricultural festival, and it would have been one of the quarter days of the year, and it would have also taken place around this time. Obviously, we don't have exact calendar dates, but, you know, roughly end of October. So we're going to okay. start there with Samhain. Cool. So what does a traditional Samhain look like? Well... We're, again, as per usual, not super sure, because, you know, they didn't have the decency to write things down for me, Devin. I'm constantly annoyed, Ugh. you know? Not enough people keeping diaries. Those darn Celts. Right? No, dear diary, it was Samhain today. Here's an itemized list of what I did. 
<laughs> but it seems like it kind of had this status as like a liminal borderline holiday because it's taking place mm-hmm. between the autumn equ- equinox and the winter solstice. So in Celtic okay. lore, it kind of marks this boundary between summer and winter and between sort of the warmth and light and the coming darkness. Like Samhain literally means summer's end. So mm-hmm. it's sort of seen as, like, anthropologists have called it sort of this threshold holiday where you're sort of transitioning into a new part of the year. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's this idea of having, like, a time out of time, but also the idea that, okay, because we're in this, like, neither here nor there state, you know, that's that's when it's when things can get kind of spooky because that's when the supernatural can show up mm. because it's not, you know, ordinary, regular time anymore. It's this kind of special time. Cool. So from what we've from from what we know from like archaeological records and kind of second hand accounts of, say, like Romans who are writing things down, having encountered the Celts, this time at the Feast of Samhain was kind of a time where you would be doing your stock taking and your in-gathering, you know, making sure you had enough food for the winter. And this is when you would prepare the quarters for itinerant shamans and warriors. Cool. So, you know, you're kind of getting everybody in. You're recalling all of your people (laughs) to come in for the winter. Yeah, it gets cold in the northern British Isles. It is. Oh, very much so. chilly up there. And it's also, there's this idea of potentially even the dead coming mm. home, especially on this one night. It's this idea that there's this supernatural intensity and that, you know, the the spirits of your ancestors are going to come out from their barrows and from their, their graves and they're going to kind of be wandering and, and try to come home and visit you for that Aww. night. Yeah, but there also seems... Oh, you go. No, I was just going to say that sounds nice. Or are they, like, going to do bad things to you? Well, there seems to be this idea of, like, you can have, like, your nice ancestors Mm -hmm. who are coming home, but there's also, like, well, if the good spirits can come out, so can the bad ones. Uh, Right. So there does also seem to be this idea of building these huge bonfires um, which the fire and the light and the heat is supposed to scare away anything that's bad. You know how I feel about a bonfire holiday. <laughs> you know how much I want bonfires. <laughs> Despite, you know... Living in an urban all setting. All the local... De- <laughs> yeah, the... Well, and, you know, the local fire department just... Zoning laws. Isn't on board with it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a real problem. We could have a bonfire in the park if we all weren't cowards. (laughs) The other thing that comes up is potentially... There there was most likely some kind of animal sacrifice going on in traditional Samhain. But, you know, in that, like, this would have been the time of year when you'd be slaughtering animals to make sure that, you know, so that you don't have to feed all of your animals through the winter and so that you have, like you know, meat and fat and leather Mm -hmm. goods to get you through the winter, right? So, you know, at least some of them, there there have been, you know, kind of these deposits of bones found that show that, okay, at least some of them 
were most likely ritually slaughtered as well as offerings to gods or to ancestors. And uh, uh, you have to appease is... the ghosts, obviously. Yeah, obviously you need to appease the ghosts, the gods, you need to appease the fairies, maybe, because uh, once again, as we always say, these aren't yeah. the cute little fairies in Victorian children's books. These are like terrifying monster creatures who maybe will help you sometimes, but are also not opposed to stealing your babies. So like, Yeah, they're the, the old ones. Yes, the good folk. Yes. <laughs> the fair folk. <laughs> I, uh, and now this I thing. do have a I have a book of uh, traditional Scottish fairy stories, and I'm telling oh, you, like, solid seventy five percent of them are like little fairy men stealing babies and then pretending to be the baby so that they can suck on titties. And so I do not know what was going on in Scotland at this time, but. Yeah. <laughs> 75% of them it was like this lady was like ah oh, what you're not my baby and he was like titties <laughs> look they didn't have Netflix they didn't have like a lot to do I guess you had to get your kicks somehow and that's that was their preferred method so now that we've uh, we've talked about mm -hmm. about the fair folk we now have to talk about you know uh, a, a controversial Ooh. topic, which is a human sacrifice? Question mark. Wait, there's there was maybe some human sacrifice on Samhain. It's noted in like some of the folk tales um, of the saints who were encountering the Celts. So like Saint Columba, it's mentioned in, and it's mentioned in the stories of Saint Patrick. But St. Patrick's own accounts and own writings don't actually mention human mm. sacrifice, which, like, you'd think he would mention <laughs> if he if, saw it. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, I just, I feel like that would be kind of a red letter day for most <laughs> people. Like, oh, saw them ritually killing guy today. <laughs> Gonna jot that one down in the journal, but <laughs> nope. I don't know. I mean... Yeah, but there are archaeological remains where, you know, there's piles of heads at temple sites, which there is suggestions that Celtic warriors kept the the skulls of their mm. opponents as trophies in kind of the Roman or even pre-Roman era. There's, you know, there are, um, you know, discoveries like Lindo Man, which is the bog body that they found where, you know, he was... Uh, struck from behind, garroted, and then bled, and was then dropped into a bog. Love a good bog body. So, yeah, yeah, yeah like a lot of the bog bodies where, you know, they're clearly, it, it's not a situation where they like, oh, they drowned and then were just preserved in the bog. It was, they Put were in the bog. killed in these very, like, yeah, like they, they, they were placed in the bogs and also they had been killed in these very strange to us ways so it's it's you know i'm not going to say either way like did salwain include human sacrifice but you know it's out there okay that's that's 
and that was an option perhaps <laughs> i am not endorsing it i am when we get to the, the end and we're like how should you celebrate someone <laughs> you should ritually kill and go out someone <laughs> leave leave them in, a bog. them in the bog <laughs> Look, I do think you should make offerings. To yeah, the that's log. what I was gonna ask. Would it have been your like local a, would it have been like to appease the spirits of these like liminal spaces? Like, because the bog, especially because we've talked about how they were reclaiming wetlands in these periods for farming. Um. Well, a lot of the bog bodies come a long time before the actual wetland reclamation, mm-hmm. so. The idea seems to be more like the bog might have been seen as like this liminal sort of scary place. And from what little we do have about like written accounts, um, yeah, there does seem to be this belief that like that's where the demons live, that's where the monsters live, because, you know, the bogs and the swamps, like they smell weird and you can drown easily. And, you know, there's there's these tales of people you know, meeting meeting scary things mm-hmm. in the swamps. So it might have been something like that. It might have been, like, to appease these kinds of creatures, or, you know, we, we don't really know is the thing. So I don't really want to say one way or the other, but... Yeah, but that totally makes sense. Um, so may or may not have been human sacrifices to the bogs. Yes. Cool. It was also, though, on a less, you know, less morbid note, a time of divine couplings. Uh, oh! And, you know, fertility. Because there's this idea of Dagda, who's one of the one of the old gods in the old Irish tradition. He woos um, other goddesses and other, like, divine beings and has ritual intercourse with um assorted deities at this time okay so you know there's this idea of divine coupling protecting the crops Mm. because it's this sort of fertility symbol so again you know maybe a time of fertility rites but once again not super clear (laughs) But I think kind of the biggest one that seems seems to come up is this association with darkness and the supernatural. Yeah. Because there's this idea of, you know, okay, it's nature is going to sleep, the summer has ended, and now the earth is becoming, you know, kind of darker and colder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a time where there's you know, more supernatural power, you're more likely to kind of encounter, you know, maybe the Morrigan or uh, which are the kind of sort of the Celtic equivalent of the three fates, yeah. I guess. Yeah, and and this kind of idea of, you know, you might be more likely to encounter elves and fairies at this time. And there's this sort of blurred boundaries between the you know, the normal mundane life and the supernatural. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna roll it on over to the Middle Ages where okay. we at last have some records. <laughs> what up? <laughs> Finally. More records. History. 
<laughs> so it takes a long time for All Hallows Eve or Hallow Mass to really take off, actually. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you have Samhain, which is this pre-Christian, pre-Roman, you know, for all we know, like, Iron Age, maybe older than that, mm-hmm. festival. But the early Christians don't really start celebrating All Saints Day, All Souls Day until about the year 1000, when it's sort of spread as this idea of, okay, we should take time out of the year to pray for All Saints, which is November 1st, and All Souls, which is November 2nd. That's my birthday, Uh, y'all. Send me a present. Thoughts and prayers for Devin. (laughs) Rude. (laughs) Thoughts spelt T H O T S. Oh, never mind. (laughs) Send them thoughts. Send me them thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) So, All Souls Day. (laughs) Yeah. So, these were kind of a joint two day extravaganza of feast days. Mm -hmm. And they were two of the most important ones uh, of the year. They were marked by high masses, lots of prayers. And it was sort of this idea of a holiday that's about respecting the dead and also like acknowledging the claim that they still have on the living. Spooky. Um, because, yeah, because in a lot of ways, these masses were supposed to be insurance against being haunted. Oh. <laughs> because in the Middle Ages, right, you ghosts, th- this is where we really get this idea of ghosts as being like un you know spirits with unfinished business Mm. so if you're being haunted it's it's a relative or you know another you know a neighbor or somebody who wants you to right the wrongs that were committed against them Ah. and kind of fulfill your obligations as their kinsmen basically um and it's also about you know praying for these souls in purgatory because there's this understanding right that you know most people aren't bad enough to go to actual hell but most people aren't good enough to just get into heaven right away so they get sent to again this liminal space right you go to purgatory where you basically have to do penance to like you know atone for all the sins in your life but it your purgatory can pass faster if you have people praying for you in the mortal world so it's again kind of this idea of paying off your indulgences yeah exactly (laughs) and like having you know this idea that like the dead are still part of the community and like they still you still have obligations to dead relatives and friends family members but you do also get this sort of heightened sense of the supernatural more generally at this time it wasn't necessarily like super like by the book to do this i guess but you get these kind of folk practices that crop up where you would ring bells for the souls in purgatory but these bells were also supposed to be rung Uh, all night and that would ward off demons and evil spirits and you know all the all the nasty creatures that might be lurking in the woods Mm. okay so 
Obviously, we can't go into every single local custom, but there are some I wanted to share because I really like them. So in Naples, you had charnel houses that housed the bones of the dead. Mm -hmm. And on All Souls Day, they would open them up and decorate them with flowers, and they would dress the cadavers in robes and place them in niches along the walls, which... (laughs) And then everyone would come and visit their dead friends and relatives who are just, like, dressed up (laughs) and wearing flowers and stuff. (laughs) Cool. So I think that's just fantastic. Really enjoyed that one. That reminds me of the the caves we went to in Ukraine when we went to see all of the dead monks in caves. We did some weird stuff in Ukraine. (laughs) in the caverns where they had Devin. all of the dead the dead monks in those glass cases and you we went to see them on that high holy day yeah Devin, it's not that weird we went into a cave and hung out with dead monks <laughs> what's wrong with my dead monks in a hole <laughs> i don't know i mean the people of ukraine thought it was kind of weird that we were there at all like <laughs> these clearly at least two americans doing <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. You were with me. I I speak okay Ukrainian. It's fine. We were fine. We had every right to be there. There were, we were all semi students at the time. She pointed they out were... the monk that takes care of students. Yeah, and they all. P.S. Everyone should go on holiday to Ukraine. It was the best part of our Europe trip. It was awesome, and you can get so much food for like so few Canadian dollars and everyone's super excited that you're there because apparently there's not a whole lot of people who travel like into Ukraine well you know Devin the whole for tourism the whole yeah like the whole war and Chernobyl and Iron Curtain thing really really yeah. turned people off but, yeah, but yeah. I'm saying that that doesn't matter. Yes, you I should think, definitely you still shouldn't. go because it's super fun yes, and everyone's really, really nice. Go, <laughs> yes. Go go to Kiev. Go to Lviv. Yeah. Don't go to, like, Donbass. You'll be fine. Yeah. You'll be safe. Yeah. Actually, don't go there right now. It's a pandemic. But, you know, Yeah, I mean, future. don't go anywhere because it's a pandemic. <laughs> but when you can, yeah, go I places. Say, go I to was... Ukraine. Go to Kiev. It's so fun. I loved Kiev. It was really nice. Anyway, um, back to the Italy is where we were. <laughs> yes, we were we were in Italy, but now we're gonna move over to uh, England, where once again you would build bonfires in the graveyards to ward off malevolent spirits. Yeah, and and you would have young women wearing garlands who would play harps by lamplight. Oh, cool. Do you... Uh, Can I just say, I would love to be hired to do that. I would like to be a garlanded woman playing a harp. Yeah, same. I do not know how to play a harp, though, so that might be a problem. But what do you you think the police would have to say if um, this Halloween I just built a giant bonfire in the graveyard on the mountain? (laughs) Just like... Cause you know that's the real problem with the police is that they stop me building bonfires. That's what I want to do for Halloween now. Quarantine. Is I think that would to be, be lifted. I'm gonna go build a bonfire. Hypothetically, <laughs> yeah, hypothetically. Well, also, you know, it's you'd be socially distanced. Yeah, I'm not 
No one's getting too, too close in a bonfire. I think yeah. it's a nice, safe My garlanded activity. women will stand six feet apart. Absolutely. <laughs> Anywho, what else do they do? So, more generally, in All Saints and All Souls Day, there was also kind of this, uh, especially on on All, All Hallows Eve, mm-hmm. there seems to also have been this idea that, you know, you, you could kind of... You, you got a little bit more leeway to violate community norms and just sort of go a little wild for the night. Go a little, yes. you know, get a little rowdy. Because you'd basically go from about October 31st, which is All Hallows' Eve, mm-hmm. until December 28th, which was the like Christmas Feast of Fools. And this was sort of the time of year when you were given more leeway. So this is a time when... The young men of the village might take up some quote-unquote rough justice against an unpopular neighbor. So, you know, maybe if you've been a bit of a dick this year, you might find that your cart's missing and it's in the bonfire. Um, you know, they there. this was also around the time where, again, you'd be slaughtering a lot of animals, so... You, there would be a lot of ball games, right? Because the like the OG soccer balls, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't have soccer yet, but you know, rough equivalents of that. And I do mean rough, like there's a lot of tackling and beating each other up involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but you would use the bladder and blow that up to use as a ball. Um, and this is also where you could kind of have this like misrule. Uh, you were allowed to, well, at least for a time uh there are you know records of choristers who would basically cross-dress and you were allowed to just do that as part of the festivities uh you could go bang on people's doors demand food demand prayers for your dead ancestors you know maybe and also just like get into some mischief you know smash some yeah. fences break some things go a little wild cool like bonfires that aren't sanctioned <laughs> i'm not telling you to do this now i'm just saying it's a thing that could happen <laughs> but then of course we reach early modern europe and everything's not fun anymore protestant reformation the protestant reformation happens and they say no you're not allowed to pray for the dead anymore which means we can't have all these good time fun times (laughs) so we can't do all this stuff so you can't pray for the dead because after the reformation there would have been no purgatory and they would have been saved based on their the faith they had during life, right? That's the, yes. That's what's happening. Okay. Ah, uh, yes. So, and if you are praying for the dead, then Devon, that is him popish doctrine incompatible with the notion of predestination. Oh. So, Dang no it. praying for the dead. You also can't do any of the rituals around this. So, like, Thomas Cranmer, he's archbishop mm-hmm. in England in 1546 he tries to abolish ringing the bells for the dead but you know Henry VIII's like but what if we don't do that because you know I really don't want the Holy Roman Empire to hate me and also France is gonna hate me but then his son comes into power and he's like yeah stop ringing the bells not allowed anymore but 
a lot of places just kept doing it anyway because they're like, mm, come here and make me, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. It's also the fact that, you know, a lot of the things that could be done for a lot of these, like, Catholic slash folk practices, mm-hmm. it was really hard to stamp out because it was... It, they, they were practices that didn't really require a lot of clerical or yeah any other type of really oversight, right? So we have records that there were people in North Wales who were still doing candlelight processions at this time. Um, in England, there are lots of, you know, people getting written up for ringing the bells on these days. There were people being brought into church courts, you know, all through the 1560s for refusing to stop ringing bells and lighting candles and lighting yes. bonfires on hilltops because people it to like man. to make that's what I'm saying. Make some noise. Light some fires. That's not a direct instruction. Upset some stodgy Protestants. <laughs> or, yeah, exactly. And nowadays you can also upset stodgy Catholics. Yeah. I just say stodgy anyone. Tradcath so disappointing. When I heard the term Tradcath, I was like, oh, you would like to partake in the old ways. Let us build a bonfire and decorate some cadavers. And they're like, no, I just hate women and Vatican <laughs> too. And you're like, oh, man, I thought I found a friend. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> what a time to be alive. But I also... Just racism. things were better when we were meaner to lgbt people like no stop it bad why can't you just go ring the bells for the souls of the departed and also to ward off the demons why can't we do that i get very frustrated however we also see However, we see the development of souling, which is the custom of breaking bread or soul cakes, which was established well before the Reformation, but, you know, it kind of spikes afterwards, it seems, because, you know, it's something you can do that's, you know, again, a little bit more under the radar. So what you would do is you would distribute these soul cakes to relatives, to poor neighbors, to basically anyone who uh, you could convince to pray for the souls in purgatory, uh, specifically of your family. So you'd go around with your little cakes and say, like, Devin, I will give you this cake if you promise to pray for the souls of my family in purgatory. And Devin, you would say, yes, of course. And then you would take my bread and have a nice little Halloween. Dope. I love that. I think that handing out cakes to strangers should happen more often. I just I want more cake in my life. I agree. And I I do <laughs> I like this uh you know, th- this idea that's I mean, it's present in the Middle Ages and in early modern Europe where you have this time of year that's like November and December is when you kind of enforce charity. Like you know, you just kind of show yeah. up with all the lads to someone's house, typically like a richer person's house, and you just start banging on the door and making a racket. You're maybe singing some songs. 
um, and basically say, like, give us food and drink and maybe some money. We'll leave you alone, but, you know, we're going to keep being annoying until until you, uh, until you give in. Give us something to eat. Yeah. Listen, I think we gotta, we gotta bring that back. Normalize going to your boss's house and demanding food. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying, that's what the peasants were up to two months of the year back in the day. Ah, the good old days. (laughs) Man. I mean, not to support feudalism, but, you know, I just think that there's some stuff we could bring back. Yeah, I think that we can definitely, you know buffet pick feudalism just like the things that we liked yeah of the feudal societies you know neighborly responsibility yes enforced charity yes trial by combat (laughs) trial by combat (laughs) I Uh, think we could settle a lot of disputes more (laughs) effectively if you had to sword fight your way out also, um, I just think that there should be more feast days just right. universally observed. Everyone takes the day off and has a feast together. Yeah, people used to have like 50 of those yeah. a year. That's not yeah. even an exaggeration. No, it's not. And then, really want you know, through the 1700s and into the 1800s, they went and, and repealed all of them. And now we all have like a handful of stat holidays. And I'm like, no, give me back my 50 days off a year. Yeah, I want Where that. I can show up at my boss's house and he has to lay out a spread of food for us. That yes. sounds great. Yes, I think so. I think that if if in North America... Uh, there's going to be resistance to high taxation for the wealthy um, that they should have to provide their entire communities with 50 days worth of feasts. Yes, I agree. A minimum of 50 days. I mean, I want to go like true traditional old like Catholic calendar where it was like every fourth day, you know, you just sort of like, yeah, (laughs) scatter them about and it's like, meh. (laughs) <laughs> not doing anything today but yeah i i think that that if they want to be you know quote unquote conservative i want to conserve actual traditional values of rich people providing food for everyone in the community for a majority of the days of the year <laughs> yes strong agree <laughs> i also think you know traditions we should preserve is I, I was looking for something and now it, it flew my mind. Give me a moment. It's fine. Um. Anyway, but anyway, Halloween. I think it's time that we head into, you know, we've reached really the late 18th century here. Okay. So, so, you know, throughout the early modern era, the big point is you kind of move away from a lot of this you know, rough justice, these kind of carnival-type behaviors and getting rowdy. Um, And what's 
and and it becomes much more focused on the aspects that are about the dead and honoring the dead but it also became this time that was still sort of known as being a little bit more intensely supernatural especially outside of urban centers Mm -hmm. um you're still seeing through the 17th, 18th, and now I'm coming into the early 19th century, especially in rural areas, you still see this idea of, you know, on Halloween, that's when we kind of start to hear the actual use of the word Halloween. Um, And this is, we're still seeing this kind of supernatural elements to it. So we have this idea of the custom of lating, which is... Again, you'd burn candles or torches to ward off the er- the evil spirits, and you would keep your candles burning all night. And if your candle continued to burn during the witching hour, so basically through the whole night, then the person who carried it or the person who put it out would get immunity from witches for the whole year. Oh, dope. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sucks for the people for whom it didn't work, but... Well, you know, you gotta have... Witches gotta eat too, Devin. You know, they gotta get somebody every once in a while. But it's also... We still see these souling customs that keep going on through, especially rural areas in the 19th Mm -hmm. century. Um, You know, this is mostly British Isles still. And it's also... We see this sort of continued kind of supernatural abilities that sort of mm-hmm. come into play where you have ideas that spring up like a woman who's born on Halloween is supposed to have supernatural powers and you know a capacity for fortune telling cool and you know there were these kind of rituals you would do that would be sort of looking for good omens on Mm -hmm. halloween looking for you know different types of divination so you have customs like young women putting a sprig of rosemary under their pillow on halloween and that's supposed to give you a dream of your future husband um and in other places people would say that you could learn of the impending deaths by watching the shadows in a churchyard on Halloween and see who was going to die. Oh no. But it all kind of becomes scattered, right? Mm -hmm. So it becomes very decentralized, obviously, and very, very local specific in these rural areas. And especially in Ireland and Scotland, we actually see a lot of these Celtic practices that are staying much stronger and mm-hmm. we do see this somewhat continued association with Samhain. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, there wasn't really a huge differentiation between, you know, All Saints, All Souls, Halloween, Samhain. Mm-hmm. And you would see this kind of syncretism and overlap happening, not only just with, you know, ordinary lay people, but also from priests themselves. You know, it's this idea that okay, you have the wandering spirits of Samhain and the wandering souls of Purgatory, which you can acknowledge at the same time. So there was a lot of this kind of overlap that's happening here, Mm -hmm. where, once again, you're still having these ideas of sort of wandering 
evil spirits. But also, you know, maybe grandma's spirit's gonna come give you a visit. So overall, kind of, yeah, again, like sort of a liminal space where it's both, you know, good things and bad things can happen to you. Yeah. And I will say that in these communities specifically, it's, you know, it's been observed that well into the 19th and even into the 20th century in some cases, uh, an amount of the rowdiness was was kept for Halloween. You know, you kind of <laughs> kept this idea of rough justice of, well, you know, if if you're disliked, then when they go to build the bonfires, you know, all the all the young all the young people all the young men are gonna show up and you know take your barrels and maybe parts of your fence are gonna break your doors <laughs> maybe kick over your cabbages a bit so it's kind of this like unofficial activity of like yeah kind of squaring up for the year of saying hey <laughs> you and you a, didn't behave accounting. yourself exactly it's an accounting time <laughs> But I think now it's time to turn it over to Devin because yeah. you know Halloween kind of petered out in in most areas of Europe. It's not really a thing, but it really does become a thing in North America. Yeah, it does. Um, but Halloween does get kind of a late start in North America. So right. You have Europeans bringing European traditions over as early as the late 1500s. But in the United States in particular, so many of these people were Puritans who were just like, you can't have any fun. Um, So they they didn't, the, the Puritans didn't bring any of the, what's called like reveling holidays. Um, so also any saint days, any holiday suffix with mass, so Hallowmas or Christmas, um, there was just like, there's no partying. You can only be sad, essentially. Um, and even talking about like ghosts or specters or divination would have been considered witchcraft and so you wouldn't really want to talk in your community about you know if you were one of the people who had once celebrated halloween or were trying to protect yourself from like the demons and stuff on halloween like you wouldn't want to talk about that in front of the rest of your community because you might uh be you know, considered a witch. So there, there was no celebrating of Halloween. Um, some people in like the larger cities, as those developed in the later 18th century, would um, celebrate, you know, bonfire night on the fifth of November for remembering the gunpowder plot, um, which is not a thing really in at least in the states i don't know do you guys do that in anglo canada do you still celebrate the 5th of november yeah okay so no one cares about trying to no No one in north america cares that some guy like 500 years ago tried to blow up parliament nobody cares 
<laughs> we, yeah, you know, that's, that seems like we, no we had other remember, stuff going on. Or remember the 5th of November. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. only in V for Vendetta. Um, but once we get into the 19th century, there is a shift in the migrations that, of people who are coming to um, North America. So you get a whole bunch of mm-hmm. Irishmen and Scots crossing the Atlantic in record numbers, and they are bringing the traditions of Halloween with them. Um, so in the States, this is a lot of Irishmen in uh, you know Boston and New York, and then there were a lot of Scottish people who are coming to the United States, but they're also going to Canada in record numbers. So it's really the Scots who bring Halloween to Canada. And what you see with Halloween is because of who in the like Scottish community are emigrating to the cities in Canada, you can see it the way that Halloween is celebrated shifts pretty drastically. So you were just saying that in the more Celtic states in the British Isles that it kept, you know, this reveling rough justice kind of idea through the 19th century. Well, these are like the fancy people who came to like Montreal and, you know, like when you walk around and you see all these like very Scottish names on all the buildings in Montreal or Exactly. McGill. <laughs> yes. McGill one. University. Um, but also, you know, yes. in uh, Kingston, Ottawa, Toronto, all of these places where there's just like a whole bunch of right. Halifax, uh, a whole bunch of Scots. Um, yep. They were mostly like wealthy businessmen who created these like cultural societies, like the Caledonian Society, um, and they wanted holidays to basically just like bop around and be like hey we're super scottish and so it uh the halloween in 19th century canada at least really is sort of more of what now would be like a burns night you know so they would um have okay like traditional meals like it would be a big feast held at the like society house um and they would play highland music and jigs they'd like sing the ballads and recite the poems of robert burns and you know you would eat all of these um traditional scottish meals which don't know you know there's haggis i i guess i don't know gross yeah Yeah. neeps and tatties Uh, and so as one guest remarked in 1885 at the montreal meeting we are not defining the future or burning nuts or catching the snap apple but we are celebrating scottishness um so that's sort of what it became and um sort of to create this like culture of elites who are all kind of partying together and like working together and creating like a sort of cultural solidarity. The Montreal branch of the Caledonian Society started inviting these other ethnic societies to their Halloween 
parties. So you see the St. George and oh. St. Patrick societies and the St. Jean right. Baptiste Society and the Irish Protestant Benevolent Society. They were all invited by 1900. So it became this place, this like fancy party for local, prominent local businessmen. Okay, so it's all like kind of the mm-hmm. Anglo British Isles fancy people who have immigrated to Canada and the yeah, US and but are getting together. It was like, having well, it was still food. like much more. It was still very centered on Scotland because it was being held by the Scotsmen, right? And especially in Montreal, they were like very oh, okay. proud of that. Um, but you also see it in um, a few other yes. of the major um, Canadian cities that sort of similar things are happening. There's one, a, a similar, a similar party is held um, by the Orangemen in Hamilton um, and one in Kingston, though eventually they changed that to a 5th of November party as well. But like, this is sort of what Halloween is in like the mid 19th century is that it's, this party for the wealthy to celebrate like their ethnic heritage um, from across the pond. Okay. Um, and so what you see is that like because of where it's being celebrated, that it's it's happening in these commercial venues, so they're like renting out halls and stuff for these, and that it's like being put on by these ethnic Eventually it sort of like becomes more of something that's put on for the whole community. And so you see this sort of like the commercialization of Halloween. So instead of being like a small family or community holiday, right, where they're like out reveling in like a town square or something, it's in a hall or they're holding, like societies will hold like a Halloween dance. Right, for like the young people to come to where they'll right. be supervised. Right. And, you know, they play like traditional music and stuff like this. That it's it's much it's less of a family affair and more of a commercial affair. And so pretty quickly you see oh, okay. the commercialization of this holiday that like uh companies start latching onto it. Um and yeah, uh, and so you see, like, yeah, so you gotta see, capitalize like, the, um, traditional sort of snacks and things that were like eaten, the like harvest fruits, like nuts and apples and things, are then being sold right. like on special around Halloween. And once it becomes, it sort of permeates the whole society that way, you get more of the reveling back. And this is when the, like, covering your face becomes more of a thing. So, like, I'm going to bounce around here (laughs) a little bit. So what happens is you get this commercialization, but you also have, this is the period of intense industrialization and intense... Um, urbanization so the structure of society is changing and the way that young people interact with each other is changing right there are more young people who are leaving the home Mm -hmm. to go and work and the home is much smaller you know there's like more of like the tenement 
homes for the working class. So for the working class, especially young people socialize outside the home and often outside of direct parental supervision for the first time. Right. Because before this, it would have been in a very controlled Mm -hmm. environment. Like you're, you know, you're either poor in the countryside where everybody knows everybody or you're rich in the city and, you know, you're being supervised in the parlor with, yeah. you know, your mother and father there. Exactly. So a couple things are sort of lost in change in Halloween for the working class at this time. So the divination and the matchmaking parts and, like, really the familial parts of Halloween that existed in the British Isles no longer is happening. It's more of a time for young people to be out, you know, getting rowdy on their own. You know, there might be some supervision by like the society at the dance, but there's no telling like what the boys on the street might be doing. And the tradition of the sort of caroling type thing comes back and there would be, you know, teenage boys who would get together and like form bands and busk for money but they would also you know go and and play what's called this book refers to as neighborly pranks Mm -hmm. (laughs) which i do not think are particularly neighborly because at one point in time they were like the police apparently wouldn't interfere with halloween pranks as long as they didn't get too out of hand like Apparently, one year, some boys had to be scolded for derailing a streetcar because it might be dangerous to passengers. Listen, Devin, there weren't rules yet, okay? Everyone was still just wild in the streets doing what they felt like. So, like, examples of some neighborly pranks were... Let me just find them really quickly. Um... Uh, yes, um, so uprooting vegetables from backyard gardens, disfiguring jack-o'-lanterns, unhinging gates and shutters, tipping over outhouses, uh, pulling hey. down signs and fences, uh, tear up the sidewalks, so like the wooded, the woodboard sidewalks, um, and in rural areas, uh, putting farm implements and cartwheels on roofs. And then also, like, the the derailing streetcars, uh, lighting bonfires, um, <laughs> a newspaper in Kingston remarked that when some revelers tore down fences and awnings that it was serious play, but lads will be lads. <laughs> So uh, that's they started covering their faces when they would do this with uh, like cork soot, and mm-hmm. then right that's when stores shops started advertising for Halloween masks, and more of the once that sort of caught on, more of the dances and community organizations turned into masquerades, and so you would that's where the like sort of costuming became a thing and by the early 20th century that was really like what this was and 
this was mostly it was mostly young men like teenage boys who would be doing this because um especially if you were like middle or upper class women it would have been really really improper for you to you know dress up and go put a cart on a roof but yeah no definitely not (laughs) eventually not allowed eventually that also sort of like eases a little bit um but they did adapt the um practice of lighting the candles um because you would cradle it says that they would have been cradled in turnips and that turned into the practice of carving jack-o'-lanterns um though they would also like be destroyed by the town boys um and also the the soliciting of gifts or like candy from strangers in houses would was another practice that was like sort of brought back as more and more immigrants came over and the the working class took up this holiday in an urban setting so it's sort of reinvented in this commercialized way where people would go out and like purchase nuts and cakes and stuff to have for when these young boys in costume would come to their house and be like, I'm going to tear up your vegetable garden if you don't give me treats. And so that's sort of what it became, but it gets a little, <laughs> it gets a little out of hand at when the 20th century comes around. So right. it's no longer really associated with like, actual witchcraft or anything like that and of course you have some wealthy scotsmen attributing this to the the civilizing nature of the new world and new society of course but it's really just that it was like commercial and urban now and so there wasn't a whole lot of the folk practices staying through that it became this very commercial holiday and by you get the time you get to the 20th century especially you know, we get to the, like, interwar years. Um, the, the teenagers really take the Halloween partying and roughhousing to a whole new extreme in the 20s, and people start to get really worried about it. And then as the 30s come around and the Depression hits, um, the demanding of food and drink and stuff is becomes a more and more important part of the holiday because people are literally like, I know that I can do this on this day and we are desperate yeah. and we are hungry. And so like if towns put on fairs, like people from other towns would like swarm these fairs and just eat and drink everything they could get their hands on. Um, you know, there was it was becoming too hard to like enforce ticket sales and things like this. And so things got like super bananas. And of course then like the second world war comes along and that sort of changes how everything in all of North America kind of happens. You have like, you know, as the war ends this period of, especially in the U S economic boom, yeah. And it becomes less tolerated for destruction of property to happen, for people to be out, especially after the like craziness of the interwar years. They're like, we cannot have people like, you know, 
breaking into bakeries or holding holding shopkeepers hostage for all of their food because it's Halloween. Like, I mean, it got really, really out of hand. So that's when you get the idea of trick-or-treating because in the late 1940s, they were, like, trying to make the idea of demanding food in exchange for not destroying property to seem childlike and amusing and Aww. so it was something that there's like this cultural campaign to make it so that this is something that children do they just go around and they get treats and with the like commercialization of a lot of food products you get all of the like specific candies that are created and they had sort of started doing candy specials in the 1920s um, right. but it wasn't specific Halloween candy it was just that candy might be on sale around that time along with like okay. nuts and fruits and things and in the 1940s it becomes specifically this is Halloween candy and this is what you give to children when they're trick-or-treating and so it's this very 1950s post-war tamping down you know the restraint back on to society again right. that you see you know sort of everywhere but um that's where like halloween as we know it really becomes a thing but by this period um this was easy to do because in the north america halloween had already fully become a peer group holiday and it was no longer a familial holiday so you wouldn't celebrate halloween with your parents you know you wouldn't celebrate it with me necessarily your younger siblings it was something that like you know a group of teenagers would go and do their thing children would be doing their own thing and parents would be doing their you know it was a just with your peer group and not it didn't have the family feast day thanksgiving harvest festival kind of vibe that it did before it was fully now like a commercialized peer group festivity thing that had like specific paraphernalia that went along with it and so making trick-or-treating you know the the icon of what now especially that people could afford things like candy after the war right because most holidays were sort of like we're not gonna really do this anymore during the war because you know extra food extra chocolate all of that was being rationed everywhere it was being sent you know overseas to soldiers were getting all the chocolate right which like you know you're fighting nazis you could have the chocolate yeah i think, <laughs> I think that's very reasonable i'm asking you to go risk your life in a trench i can give you some chocolate <laughs> yeah so um yeah it's so it's an easy transition to do and that sort of then is is what the Halloween that we now know is. That's the trick-or-treating, the candy, the costumes is all like fully sort of developed in the 1950s and from the 1960s onward is what we sort of know. And in the 70s, right, there's this period of like extreme cultural anxiety and people start getting really worried about children being out after dark. And so there's like this tension around uh halloween 
And it's so it has to do with like the national news and the way that like news is being reported that people get very, very anxious about children. So every time a child is missing, like sort of anywhere across America, right, you get the news about it and, you know, Amber Alerts and all these things. This is all the 1970s. And there are like two stories of children being killed by tainted Halloween candy, though uh, one of them he ingested heroin that they think he found at his uncle's house while going from house to house trick-or-treating and another was a purposeful poisoning by a father of cyanide in a pixie stick Um, so the accounts of children being killed by Halloween candy are all from like within families but the specter of the tainted Halloween candy or the razor blades and apples or like poison candy is becomes this big you know ominous force over top of like the the new newly safe Halloween um, right and, and and I wonder if that's to do with like I, I don't I don't really know about this as much but like you know the kind of this breakdown of like the community as an idea because right like i feel i I feel like you know prior to the prior to this time it seems like people were pretty fine with letting their kids like run around after dark and go outside and play and stuff yeah it's much more of a thing with the the anxieties of post-war america so the idea that the the post-war U.S. is is incredibly anxious for like such yes. a safe and prosperous period of time. They're very very anxious about things, and that's because the culture of what is allowed in everyday life is shifting. So cities are now, you know, with the the sort of white flight suburbanization right, kind right. of deal, right, with redlining, where suburbs become this safe haven of like whiteness yes Um, how you talk about that stuff uh it's it's a breakdown not just of like your sort of cultural urban neighborhoods but also like a creation of a new idea of what the middle class is who you interact with and how you interact and so there's much more of this idea of like you don't know what's going on behind closed doors your neighbors are always kind of strangers right even if you are in this like safe suburban neighborhood like you know quote unquote safe and like the extreme fear of the cities you know and yeah the urban environment yeah. you know all of these things that are coded as like black people who are now allowed to go to white schools and work yeah. in white businesses and things like that it's all about racism and these and as you get into the 70s it's about you know women's empowerment and what women might be doing you know no one's going to be watching these children now because these women have jobs and like these children are just going to be out on the street and like anyone can get to them and again in the 1970s in particular this is when you have the news national news media publishing stories about uh what the first time people are dubbing k- 
killers as serial killers. Right, and so that's right. another specter. You have these specters of serial killers and cult murders and all these things that are like being put on TV and, you know, the evil rock music and all these like sort of cultural anxieties are being pushed into like everything that could possibly have to do with a child that yeah. should be safe. And even though Halloween has never been like a safe necessarily like holiday it's it's also the actual instances of children being harmed on halloween is really really low but um well, white yeah, americans I mean, like to freak out about things yeah i mean let's be real your kid is way more likely to get harmed by like being in a car accident in a car than you or know, your creepy know. uncle or yeah exactly like you're not things. It's not going to be the stranger who... Also, can I just say, no one is giving your kids drugs <laughs> in their Halloween. Bucket, drugs are right? expensive. <laughs> no one is giving your kid drugs on Halloween. I think we all just need to, like, yell this collectively until it sinks into everyone's brains. Yeah, like so, the worst thing you're gonna get in your Halloween bucket is like the one neighbor who's handing out toothbrushes or something yeah, like raisins. You know. Yeah, just like something. It's gonna be lame. <laughs> it's not gonna be <laughs> dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Um. So so yeah, it's it's really um the effort to make Halloween and everything you know very safe and sanitized. And, you know, pure, nice, blue jeans, Cold War America. Yeah. Of course, you're going to have the mirror of that being the anxieties that it's not going to be able to be that thing. So Halloween as we know it really comes from the 1950s, making this this safe Everyone's just sort of like having their own little peer group party. The kids are going to go to the school dance, you know, and maybe get into some heavy petting in their car. And the like younger kids are going to go trick or treating with their parents. But it obviously the anxieties of the age sort of, and especially since there isn't that like intense community bonding that you would have had in right. a rural feudal society. The yeah. anxieties are going to be higher. But yeah, yeah that's and, uh, Halloween in North America. Oh, that makes sense. And also <laughs> just like seeing, you know, this this huge commercialization of it, right? Where yeah. it goes from like, let's like some of the, you know, some of the um, fortune telling and practices yeah. like that that I was reading about. Where it's like, well, you know, if you put two two chestnuts together in the fire, you and, you know, the person who who you're sweet on and you put the chestnuts together and if they stay together when they crack open in the fire then you'll stay together but if they fly apart then the love won't last and like oh no oh no but also you know or like we've talked before about like you peel the apple and you yeah. throw the the peel behind your back and see what your husband's initials will be and like you know it goes from very like little traditions and maybe a feast and the you know some rowdiness and rough housing but you know to to this very like sanitized and also very commercialized um 
holiday where it's like you buy your pre-made costume at the store and you buy your plastic Halloween bucket and you buy Halloween branded candy. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, that seems to be for, you know, Anglo North America, especially the sort of gist of what happens with a lot of holidays is one, it's going to be super, super Protestant. So it's not going to be about dealing with the supernatural. It's not going to be uh, divining the future. It's not going to be praying for the dead. It's going to be... And with the, you know, so much of American history happening during rapid urbanization and industrialization and with all of the, like, weird race tensions that we have... I mean, word's not the right word, horrifying and sad, I think is probably more accurate. But like the commercialization of all of these things, making it sanitized and making the sanitized American culture that can be easily exported. Yes. Is like number one. So that's sort of the gist of most holidays in the US is this Protestantization of it that makes it like much more about like a, a ethnic holiday or you know cultural holiday and less about like the supernatural or spiritual and then the commercialization of that to make it universal and easily exported and something that people can make money off of because yep. there's something north americans want it's to make more money <laughs> yeah we do so i guess what what is our our takeaway how are we making Halloween about communism, Sonia? Well, <laughs> my brother made a joke about this. <laughs> he was like, "Your problem with the podcast is you get to the end and you're like, how can we implement this in our lives? And it's all these old communal folk practices. So of course it's just going to be be a communist." <laughs> well, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna not do that this time. I'm gonna say instead. Let's let's say instead of that let's let's use softer language. We'll say be <laughs> anti-consumerist. Yes, Step one: don't buy your costume. You have a bed sheet. Make a toga. You have <laughs> old Halloween costumes at the back of your closet. Assemble them into whatever you want. You've got another bed sheet. Cut out two holes. You're a ghost now. You're doing great. These are. Pro tips. Everyone from our Sonya. age has a top sheet that they do not use. That's what <laughs> I'm saying. You can make a ghost. You can absolutely make a ghost. You want to go step up. There's a million toga tying videos on YouTube <laughs> for free. Tie a toga. Put on some sandals. Maybe put on some jewelry. Done. You're a Greek goddess. Do all that minus the jewelry. Get a bottle of Caesar dressing. And a knife. Done. You're Julius Caesar ready to be stabbed. All this with a bed sheet. My takeaway is start using your top sheets. Use them <laughs> for Halloween costumes. And also make cakes for your neighbors. Light candles. Ring bells all night. Have yeah. a bonfire. Have some fun rituals. Light yeah. candles all night if you can't have a bonfire because the local fire department says it's dangerous and disruptive and a threat to private property. 
<laughs> I don't care about threats to private property. <laughs> but also, if you live in a rural area, if you don't live in a major metropolitan area, like the two that we are now in, uh, you know, like where I come from, you can have a bonfire because plenty of I'm people, saying. plenty of your friends should just live on farms, clear out some ground so it's just the dirt so that your grass isn't going to catch on fire make a big bonfire have everyone come over six feet away especially if you're in the states because there are no rules there yeah (laughs) exactly you're not gonna get in trouble there are no rules in the states (laughs) even if you gotta be alone because you're in a major metropolitan area that is enforcing something resembling covid rules you know that doesn't have to stop you light some candles do some rituals do some divination Make your toga costume. It's fine. Go to the grocery store in it. Like, wear clothes underneath it. We're not trying to incite public (laughs) indecency here. This podcast is already being marked for explicit content for a bunch of other reasons. But, you know, (laughs) I will come up with other costume ideas. But I'm just saying, I think that the toga is underrated. I think, you know, wearing all black and having one cat ears headband, underrated. (laughs) <laughs> stop buying costumes dope I'm gonna do unless, all of these things un- I, I will say unless you know you're like a cosplayer or if buying you're costumes a cosplayer, sparks joy I'm not gonna stop you like making costumes yeah though. but also I'm saying you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you to take whatever joy you can in this pandemic but i'm saying you know this is more so for for anyone who's like i don't want to buy any more disposable costumes just you can make things i promise learn a craft bake some cakes you know get yourself some pillsbury doughboy jack-o'-lantern cookies i know that i'm just see i'm supporting capitalism now Devin. but dang it sonia they're so get yourself under control (laughs) They're so good, Devin. I can't stop. Okay. Well, I hope everyone has a lovely and safe and culturally subversive Halloween. If you want more information about what we're doing on the pod, check out the website, our Instagram, or Twitter. Sonia's going to be all over it with pics of stuff she's doing. That's right. We've also... You know, if you're following on Twitter, there might be a Baba Yaga OnlyFans coming up. <laughs> it's it's me wearing a babushka cooking borscht. Tune in. <laughs> subscribe. And if that doesn't tickle your fancy, we've got a Baba Yaga podcast merch. Uh, there's also exclusive merch on the Patreon, so if you want to support us on Patreon, uh, it'll really, really help us out. Uh, take this project in all sorts of super ways. Um, but have a wonderful Halloween, and as always, do good work, support your neighbors. We love you. Have a good one. <laughs>